Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 115. I don't know how long this podcast is going to go. I don't know how long I envisioned it going when we started it. At no point did I think we'd be doing a podcast about Craig Council not only leaving the Brewers, but turning heel and becoming the manager of the Chicago Cubs. We've been digesting that since Monday. I still cannot believe those words are leaving my mouth. We're going to have to lead there. One of the biggest sports stories and shocking turn of events in Wisconsin sports history. Craig Council going to the Chicago Cubs. Dame Lillard is a Milwaukee Buck and Craig Council is with the Chicago Cubs. Good Lord. Packers on the road in Pittsburgh. Can they build on beating a bad Rams team? The Steelers team is 5-3. and three. Packers are 3-5. and five. Steelers offense is not good. Their defense, though, is very good. Packers have not won in the Steel City since... You know what? We'll tell you a little bit later. We'll tease for you. Badgers have Northwestern. They're somehow favored by 11. We've got college hoops tonight and some controversy at the Bucks game on Wednesday and then a barn burner of a game at Indiana on Thursday where Giannis almost broke the single game scoring record for the Bucks. It's a loaded episode. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's hard. Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit the center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's a interception, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. This is one of the all-time heel turns in Wisconsin sports history. I know the most popular comparison that I read, even in the moment of it happening, which we're going to recount here in a second, the most popular comparison and obvious comparison is Brett Favre going to the Vikings and how we felt then. In the blog I wrote, though, in the aftermath of this on Monday, when was it? By the way, it must have been Monday because we published the podcast on Monday, episode 114. And at the end of it, I'm pretty sure I said, oh, we should know in about 48 hours, 24, 48 hours, what council's going to do. Oh, Monday morning, Jonathan, if only I could warn you about what was going to happen there. At that moment when we were recording that, I thought pretty likely he's coming back to the Brewers. And worst case scenario, he is going to New York to be with David Stearns and the Mets. That's the worst case scenario when I published that podcast and then 45 minutes later, all hell broke loose. It's not lost on me, the irony of me teasing that on the at the end of Monday's podcast and 35 minutes later, that podcast almost being completely irrelevant. We didn't even get to enjoy a Victory Monday. How many Victory Mondays are we going to get this year as Wisconsin sports fans with the Packers? We didn't even get to enjoy it for 10 hours before a crank console did what he did and ended up going to Chicago. But it is just a wild scene, and I think it's even worse than Favre to the Vikings. Favre to the Vikings, 
felt provoked. And we knew as Packer fans in the moment that he wanted to get back at Ted Thompson. Maybe not necessarily Packer fans, even though it's impossible for the fans of a team not to get caught up in the middle of that. That was collateral damage that Favre was willing to accept because that's how mad he was that A, they drafted his heir apparent in the 2005 draft, and B, they decided to move on and not wait for him in that offseason. He was very open in several interviews after that about wanting to find his way to a team that could play the Packers so he could get back at Ted Thompson and get back at Mike McCarthy and those that made that choice. We knew that. I will grant you, I'm not sure we saw the loophole of retirement, of going to the Jets in a trade, then retiring, then unretiring as a free agent and signing with the Vikings. When it when it became clear after the 08 second retirement, after he retired again after the New York season, when he unretired, then you got that tremor feeling of, oh, he's definitely going to the Bears or the Vikings. We knew that was coming. This we didn't see coming. This feels unprovoked and to get the provocation, we'd probably need more to the story, and I don't think Mark Atanasio or Craig Council are going to tell us any more than we already found out this week. To f- make this feel provoked, Craig Council would probably have to go on the record and say he didn't believe or doesn't believe anymore in the way this team is being built or the way they're spending money or the way they're constructing a roster. And he's not going to say that. He did his interview. We'll talk about that in a second. He talked with the Journal Sentinel and with Adam McAlvey, the Brewer Beat reporter for Brewers.com. And he's not going to torch any more bridges, any more than he already has. That's the part of the story, though, that we would need to find out what kind of provocation there might have been for this. This feels, as a fan base, unprovoked. The Favre move felt provoked. Well, let's take you back to Monday. After we were done with the podcast... I hopped on Twitter about an hour later, and that's when things started to swirl, that he was not only going to make a choice by the end of the day on Tuesday, that it seemed like we were going to find out a destination in the near term by lunch on Monday. Then the first report on Monday from either Heyman or one of the big names, Rosenthal, was that the Brewers had a standing offer to counsel for a contract that would have made him the highest paid manager in Major League Baseball. Maybe this is a different discussion for a different day. When they compared the top salaries of coaches across all sports, college sports and pro sports, Major League Baseball managers do not get paid a lot comparatively. And I know we're comp- we're going to get into maybe comparing everyday people's salaries with sports salaries. That's a debate that you're just never going to be able to work your way out of. Well, you look at even the NHL, their highest paid coach was better paid or better compensated than the highest paid coach in Major League Baseball, one of the three big sports. I don't know what's going on there or why that's been that way for so long. The offer the Brewers had on the table was to make Craig Council the highest paid manager in baseball at $5.5 million per year annually. That's the first report we heard. Then the Guardians announced that Stephen Vogt, former Brewer catcher there for a year or two, is going to be their manager. That was a place Craig Council had gone, scratched them off the list. Then it felt like, okay, it's between the Brewers and Mets. Then the Mets hired someone at about 11 o'clock in the morning. And at that point, the Total sum of the information we had was the Brewers have a standing offer to make him the highest paid manager in baseball, and it became clear in the last week or two that that was a goal of councils to reset the salary structure for Major League Baseball managers and to get it up there a little higher. He has that standing offer. He went to Cleveland. Cleveland hired somebody else. He went to New York. That seemed to be the biggest threat this entire time with David Stearns. They hire somebody else. Okay, logical conclusion. Craig Council is coming back to the Milwaukee Brewers. 
Then about 15 minutes later, I think it was Jeff Passan had a tweet that said, Council is not managing the Mets, nor is he managing the Brewers, but he will be managing in 2024. And at that point, I'm bummed, but I'm not prepared for what's going to happen because I started to think, well, where the hell is he going to go? And you look at the standings. Well, that team, the Astros, they don't have a manager right now. Dusty Baker retired. That specific part of that tweet, this team already has a manager. Okay, take the Astros out. Would he go to New York? That was another name I saw out there for a while. The New York Yankees. Would they take him on and fire Aaron Boone? I actually texted a buddy of mine when that last tweet came out, and I sent the tweet to him. And I texted a buddy of mine, and I said, could you imagine if he went to the Cardinals? I didn't think Cubs. I thought Cardinals would be one of the most hated places he could go. And we laughed and laughed and laughed. Oh, there's no way he'd do that. Then I load up Twitter, and the first thing I see is the Ken Rosenthal tweet. The Chicago Cubs have hired Craig Council as their new manager. And as I wrote in the blog on Tuesday... The feeling in my stomach that I had was the same feeling that I had when I loaded up Twitter three or four weeks ago and saw the Woj bomb that Dame Lillard had been traded and he was coming to the Milwaukee Bucks. My emotions clearly different. One of them was shock and happiness. One of them was shock and sadness. The feeling, though, was the same. And my reaction was the same of the Woj tweet where I had to make sure this is not a fake account. This is not a fake account. This is not a fake Ken Rosenthal. This isn't Rosenthal Boy 69 or something like that. No, that's the real Ken Rosenthal. I clicked on his profile, 1.2 million followers. Okay, this is the real deal. He is going to the Cubs. Organizational disaster. The first thing I thought of, which I did put in the blog, was the moment in 1996 at WCW Bash at the Beach when Hulk Hogan, career good guy, turned heel, and became a part of the NWL, one of the great wrestling moments of all time. What are you talking about? Here he comes down the ring. What are you talking about? Yes, sir! Get him, Hogan! Go get him, baby! At this point, Macho Man Randy Savage is on the ground. He's the only person in the ring, and that's the metaphor I use. That's us. That's Brewer fans are Macho Man unwittingly on the ground, thinking that help is coming, only to have things turn dramatically against him. Come on and get some of this now. Who's bad now, boys? Hulk Hogan arrived. Hulk, Hulk, Hulk. What is oh he doing? Oh, my God. Is he the third man? He's the third man. What oh. the hell is going on here? That's Hulk us. Hogan has betrayed WCW. I am Bobby the Brain Heaton in, the, in this moment. Betrayed WCW. Betrayed he is the third man Look in at this. this picture. Oh, my God. What the hell is going on? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? God, what a moment in time. <laughs> 1996, I was watching that at my buddy Matt Stein's house. Shout out Stein. On pay-per-view that in 1996, to actually get the pay-per-view and then have it work was a miracle. 30% chance every time you ordered a wrestling, a wrestling pay-per-view back then that it would even work, and it did. And we watched that, and we were as stunned as anybody. Man, 96. And then we were heading into a Packers Super Bowl year. Nintendo 64 was just coming out. That was that was it. That was it. We didn't know it, but that was it. That was the peak. That's what I thought of, though, instantly. That heel turn, Cubs hiring counsel, sources tell The Athletic, the Rosenthal tweet. Shocked, stunned, gobsmacked, could not wrap my mind around Craig Council, the hometown kid, which is the portion of this story that makes it even crazier, it's not just that a successful Brewer manager went to the Cubs, which would be bad enough 
if you take the greatest manager in Brewer history, which is unfortunately Craig Council, who's the second greatest on that list? I don't even know. Harvey Keen? Ned Yost? I don't know. Not Nobody good. Ron Renicki? To have a manager that has taken you to a different level as a franchise, that has made the team a consistent winner, that has gotten them to the playoffs consistently, to lose the best manager in franchise history to your hated individual rival and your proximity rival in terms of cities, that's one thing. For that manager to be born and raised in Wisconsin, whose dad worked for the Brewers, who was a bat boy for the Brewers, and who told us in 2016 as a part of a promotional package video that he is one of us. He is one he understands us. He was born a brewer. This video makes me so mad now retroactively. I know that you'll never forget October 10th, 1982. September 28th, 2008. And there's a drive in the left field. October 7, 2011. Morgan, a smash up the middle, face hit the center. Here comes Gomez. Brown and the Brewers win. I know you because I am you. Shut up. You and me were cut from the same cloth. This isn't something we chose. It's not a bandwagon we jumped on when it was convenient. It's something we were born into. A piece of our identity passed down from generations before. Just like you, I was born a Brewer. This is my first love, my passion, my responsibility. This makes me so it's goddamn a torch angry. I'll carry with me always. Through the ups and the downs, the good times and the bad, no matter what, this will always be my team. Brewers baseball is part of who I am. It's part of who we are. Kick rocks, dude. Kick rocks. For him to do that, that's why we thought he was our guy because of the history. Look, I get That there is always a disconnect between the coaches and the players and the people that work in sports and those that root for a sports team. We have an emotional connection as the fans of a team to that team that the players and coaches most of the time do not have. And they it's a business. I get it. They're looking for the biggest contract, the best opportunity, the place where they can succeed. They look at it as a business. We always, as fans, look at it emotionally. The connections we have, the memories we have, the times we have with our family and friends watching games. And if the team wins championships and the euphoria after that, they don't have, players and coaches for the most part, do not have that connection. That's why there's always a little bit of a disconnect between the people that play for the team and coach the team and the fans that root for the team. But he was different, and he sold himself as different. He sold himself as being one of us. He sold himself as having that emotional attachment that we all have to the team. That's how he built himself. So that makes it even more of a twist of the knife that this is what he decided to do. Now, in the immediacy of this, we had an interview with Mark Atanasio, the famous quote saying that he had at the beginning of that interview where he lashed out a little bit was that we lost Craig, but Craig lost us. Craig lost the community. He lost Milwaukee. Kind of a little corny, I guess, but clearly upset, clearly blindsided like everybody else was. And then Council did an interview on Wednesday with the Journal Sentinel. Somebody did spray paint Craig Council Field in Whitefish Bay. Must have been Tuesday at some point or overnight Wednesday to Tuesday, and they just spray painted the word ass on Craig Council Field. And then Whitefish Bay being Whitefish Bay. My God, think of the children. They put a gigantic sheet over it. We can't have our kids seeing the word ass on there. Anyway, 
Council said that he still feels for whatever, connected to Milwaukee or connected to the franchise and blah, blah, blah. And the quote that rang true to me or at least resonated with me was that he needed a new challenge. He said, I need a new challenge. Now, where do these paths diverge? When you say you need a new challenge, when you tell us in that video we just played that you feel it's your responsibility, and he said that when he was hired, it's my responsibility to bring a title back to my hometown. That's your challenge. (laughs) You didn't do it. So when you say you're ready for a new challenge and you didn't accomplish the first challenge or get past the first challenge, you don't get to go to level two without beating the boss in level one. That, to me, means that he no longer feels like this is this franchise has a viable chance to win a title. Or at, at the very least, it's going to be incredibly difficult in this small market with the way the Atanasios are running it and the way the personnel department is being worked. He feels like he cannot get past that challenge. The only way you accept a new challenge without defeating the first challenge is if you no longer think that first challenge is something that you can achieve. That's clearly how he feels. Mark Atanasio, on his side of things, we've had some kind of suspect behavior, I guess you'd say, with the way the spending has gone with trades. This goes back probably to the Josh Hader trade in 2022 where you're in first place and a team that has playoff aspirations, maybe has a title run in it, who knows, has a pennant run in it. Then you trade your closer, your all-star closer at the trade deadline. You acquire basically nobody. I feel like this is where the tremors really began. And Council clearly made the decision to go to a team that has unlimited resources. And I said in the blog, if I'm going to look at this rationally, which I hate to do, if you want me to be rational for 30 seconds, Craig Council is widely regarded as one of the best, if not the best managers in the game. He is going to a franchise where he's still close to home, where he could still, if he wanted to, he's probably not going to, but if he wanted to, he could drive home after the game for the home games if he wanted to. He's close enough to his family, and he's going to a team with unlimited financial resources that the Brewers don't have. It makes sense. I hate to say it. It makes sense. I hate him. I hate him for it. It does make sense. That is probably the best choice for him to maybe win a title to obviously make a ton of money. But go to a team that's going to be in the running for Shohei Otani that could trade for a guy like Juan Soto, where clearly the Brewers have had chances to do that in the past two or three years and have not done that, have chose not to do that. That, to me, is what he's saying when he says, I need a new challenge because the first challenge you never conquered. That's where this all boils down to in in my mind. Now, Mark Atanasio, I don't know if he had a chance to match or not. He has kind of hinted that he didn't, but no one has explicitly said that. That was also the feeling for most of the season and into the offseason was that Council, if he was going to explore other options, was going to come back to the Brewers and say, okay, here's what the Mets offered me, here's what the Guardians offered me, here's what the Cubs offered me, even though we had no idea he was doing that. Do you want to match it? And the feeling was that if Mark Atanasio said he would match it, that Council would stay. I don't think that that's true anymore. I think Council did not give Atanasio the chance to match it because he didn't want that as a part of the story. If Council would have gone to Atanasio and Atanasio said, okay, here's $8 million. We'll give you whatever they're giving you, five years, $40 million, $8 million a year. We'll do that. We'll give you $8 million a year. Council knows then that he looks even worse. He already looks terrible. If it's discovered, though, that he went back to Atanasio and Atanasio said, okay, we'll move our offer up from 5.5 to 8 or 8.5. If you need us to get past it, we'll move it up $3 million a year. And then if he still turns it down, then he looks even worse. What little shred of objectivity we may have examining this story would be totally gone if we found out that he gave, that the Brewers decided to match, and he still spurned them. Because I think that's what would have happened. He just seemed like he was done with the way he phrased everything on Wednesday. He seems like he was done in Milwaukee. He didn't think that it was going to be 
a good chance to win a World Series there. He clearly has a better chance with the way the front office in Chicago works, with the media market, with the radio and TV contracts, with the baseball economy. It is much easier to get top-end talent and theoretically win a World Series in Chicago. It's just so stunning that he decides to go there, and the thought of him in a Cubs hat and a Cubs jersey managing at Wrigley Field Winning a title with that team. Can you imagine if he does win a title with that team? The Milwaukee kid wearing a Cubs jersey with that World Series trophy. It's just hard to stomach. I had a text with the B93 Morning Show ask if we're going to boo him at at FM Field. And the answer is absolutely he is going to get booed. Even though, as we just said, if the Brewers continue to run the organization the way they are and the Cubs are going to spend way more money and make way more trades, it makes sense for him to do what he did in some way. But he still has to get booed. I want a thick, lusty princess bride boo. Boo him out of the building. And not just once. I want it every time he visits AmFam Field for the rest of his life, for the rest of his career, that he gets booed out of that building. Even if you made the right choice for your career and your family, you can't tell me that you were born a brewer, that you bleed brewer blue, and then do what you did with what happened on Monday. And $8 million a year, I get it. I guess the Mets maybe offered seven. That's what doesn't make sense to me. I know the proximity argument of close to Milwaukee. If he goes to Chicago, he's close to Milwaukee. The reports are the Mets offered him $7 million. If he goes to the Mets, I'm not sure we're anywhere. We're not nearly as angry as we are now. And I'm not sure how many people are even angry. If he goes to New York for $7 million and the Brewers offered 5.5, the argument that I just made of going to a team with unlimited financial resources and a big media market, that would have been the prevailing sentiment, I think, for Brewers fans. We would have been bummed, but we wouldn't have been angry if he goes to the Mets. He could have gone to the Mets for $1 million less than the Cubs and preserved his Milwaukee legacy. Yes, he wouldn't be close to home or managing games within two hours of home. He could have taken $1 million less and still reset the salary structure for managers and completely preserved his legacy in Milwaukee, or at least it would have worn off. Whatever anger there would have been would have worn off quickly. I don't know right now in the moment that I see a homecoming for council at any point in Milwaukee, the way we had Favre after how many years? Was it six years or seven years? After he retired from Minnesota in 2010? Was it 2016 or 17 he wanted the Packer Hall of Fame and they sold out? I was there. Sold out Lambeau Field. He gave a 17-hour speech. He filibustered the entire induction, thanking every single person he ever encountered in Green Bay. And the crowd was there, 80,000 strong, sold out, standing ovation. I don't know, man. I mean, it's hard to say now because we're so in the fervor of anger. I How we're going to feel in 10 years or 20 years, I have no idea. Maybe at some point time heals all wounds. It probably does. But right now, I cannot envision a scenario where a council is going to get that kind of homecoming that we saw Favre get in 2016 or 2017. It's just bad. And Atanasio and is culpable, too. The way the organization has been run recently, the organization is culpable as well for making council feel like, I can't win here. I can't win a World Series here. I need to get to a team with more financial resources that can pick up any player, that can make any trade, that's not going to trade my all-star closer and pull the rug out from under me at the trade deadline when I'm sitting in first place. Atanasio is culpable here. If I'm going to put a percentage on it, it's 70% on council, 30% on Atanasio. But Atanasio is not without blame here. It does make me worry a little bit, too. I put this in the blog of could the Brewers leave at 
a year ago or six months ago, even with all these discussions about the renovation package and having to make repairs at AmFam Field and getting this 20-year plan to keep it up to date, I would have scoffed at the notion that they were going to leave. And you have heard rumblings of that and concerns from fans about that a month ago or even a week ago. I would have said 0% chance that the Brewers would ever move again. With how this is all broken now in the last two years, where you had the young up-and-coming GM and David Stearns, who was sort of looked at as the next Theo Epstein in some ways, not at that level, but you know what I mean, just a young, good baseball mind. The way that he clumsily left after 2022, still under contract last year and made money, never showed up, I guess, at AmFam Field. The way that he decided to leave and then go to New York. The way the hometown kid decided to flame his legacy in Milwaukee for probably forever also speaks to maybe the way the organization is being run. For those two guys to jump off the ship, it does make you think, and there have been more cost-cutting moves more recently than there had been whenever he bought the team in 2005 when there was this influx of cash. Going from the C-Leagues to the Adnazios, payroll went up by 20 or $30 million. They started to get more marquee names. They made trades like CC in 2008. It felt like a different franchise. It's starting to feel like it's sinking back into that C-League era. When the Brewers spent money in 2018, that was the best council year, getting them to Game 7 of the NLCS, they spent money that offseason. They made the trade to get Yelly and acquire that contract. They spent $80 million on Lorenzo Cain. Didn't have a lot of pitching that year. But they had a crop of young up-and-coming pitchers that basically pitched out of the bullpen that year. The year they spent money in 2018 and 2019 were probably Council's two best years, where you got within a game of the World Series. You lost the wild card game in 2019, but they spent money there too with Moustakis in the offseason with Yasmani Grandal. They didn't really spend money in 2020 or 2021, and they just kind of tried to operate on the fringes. They had these good young pitchers to rest on that could probably, if they're healthy, win you 85 games on their own. There have been changes there, and maybe that's what Council saw too. But the fact that you've got a Milwaukee manager, born and raised in Milwaukee or Whitefish Bay, deciding to leave for a hated rival, you had a young GM jump ship, there have been cost-cutting moves across the board, and Atanasio is sitting on the board of commissioners that is overseeing the potential Oakland A's move to wherever they're going to go. That means he's going to get a front row seat as to how that whole process goes. I still feel like it's a very low percentage that the Brewers would ever leave. But you start putting these things together, Stearns leaving and Council leaving and destroying his legacy in his hometown and the cost-cutting moves and Council on the commissioner's board for the Oakland A's. I'm from 0% to at least 10%. The lease is up in 2030. The Brewers did just purchase a large swath of land behind Miller Park where maybe they're going to try to do a Deer District or they're going to try to do a Titletown District to add to it. I don't think they'd be making those steps if they thought the team was going to leave after their 2030 lease is up. There's just there's some stuff right now that does have me more concerned than I've ever been that they would leave Milwaukee, which I can't believe we're having this discussion. It doesn't feel like Miller Park's that old. It feels like we just had this whole talk in the mid to late 90s, and here we are again almost 30 years later, and it's a growing concern for some Brewers fans. Some good Brewers news. William Contreras won the Silver Slugger Award. That was announced yesterday. He is the first catcher ever. Jonathan Lucroy never won it. Teddy Simmons never won it. Who else have they had behind home plate? Nobody's ever won that. So William Contreras wins the Silver Slugger. There were reports, too, that basically everybody is on the block now for the Brewers. They traded Mark Canna. We talked about that on Monday's podcast about the cost-cutting move there to save the 10 or $11 million on him and pick up a double-A pitcher. 
And now with Council gone and hiring a new manager, I don't know who they're going to go to there. Pat Murphy kind of seems like the clubhouse leader, and that was Council's bench coach. He has had managing experience. He would be stability to me, a guy that has been in baseball his whole life. I don't know how old he's he's 60s. He has major league managing experience. He's managed at the college level. He would be a stable person to be in that locker room that's been there the past however many years, seven years, eight years. Has he been there every year with Council? I think he has been. That would be the stable move or the stability move. I'm not sure what other direction they would go. With Council gone now, Woody's out for the year. Wade Miley opted out. It seems unlikely they're going to pay him on a two-year $16 million deal or a two-year $20 million deal. You've got no Woody. You've got no Miley. You've got no Council. Now you look at those guys. Willie Adamas is entering the final year of his deal, and Burns entering the final year of his deal. Remember we did that whole go all in <laughs> like 2011. We said on Monday's podcast that felt like a year ago that we brought that up. That was a month ago. Now with the council departure, it feels like we're even further down the road on starting a soft rebuild. You're probably going to trade Burns, and you're probably going to trade Adamas. And the reports were that maybe even Freddie Peralta's name is going to be involved in that, and you're going to start to look toward maybe 2025 or 2026. How things turn. From a 92-win season, you win the division. Then a day before the playoffs start, Woodruff's injury crops up. You get swept in two games by the Diamondbacks with some weird moves by Council on that. I'm not saying he sabotaged the team, but no, he didn't. Did he? Was Jesse Winker a sabotage? Was Jesse Winker the canary in the coal mine? The fact that Council was saying, these are the guys you're giving me, then I'm going to play them, and we're going to lose these playoffs game, and then deuces, and then I'm out of here. Maybe. With all of that going on, though, it's just totally deep-sixed what was feeling like it was a pretty good year of Brewer baseball before that playoff series started. It has been a steep leap off a cliff since then. And now it does feel like at least a soft rebuild. Maybe not full-on with all the young outfielders, with Freilich, with Weimer. Hopefully he can get it together. With Mitchell coming back, with Churio probably knocking on the door at some point this year, you hope this isn't going to be a two- or three-year deal. You hope they can kind of do what they did with Stearns in 2016, one bad year. Well, I guess 2015 was a bad year. That's when Melvin left. That's when Renicki was fired. 2016 was a down year, but they were right back in the playoff chase in 2017. You hope that will be the case, but it seems inevitable now that this team is heading towards some kind of a rebuild, whether a full-on rebuild or a soft rebuild where hopefully we can get it turned around in a year. Just a wild week with Craig Council going to the Cubs. Insane. All right, let's talk about, we got a lot to get to here. Packers-Steelers, should we do a Packers-Steelers memory? I'm not going to do the most obvious memory. The most obvious memory is Packers-Steelers Super Bowl 45 and the Packer title, which you hear the Larrabee call of with McCarron in the intro package for this podcast. I want to go to a different game real quick. We're not going to spend too much time on this, but we've been doing this Packer memory, and I've kind of enjoyed it. I'm going to take you back to Christmas Eve at Lambeau Field. I know it's not in Pittsburgh, but at Lambeau Field, Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1995, pre-Lambeau Field renovations, 60,000. Now how many do you get there? 80 or 81 for a packed house or 77? 60,000 in attendance on Christmas Eve with the snow flying and the Christmas lights up and the antlers on the cheese heads and the whole deal. Packers and Steelers, Packers have a chance with a win to win their first division title in 23 years. I actually watched a full highlight package. We're only going to play one highlight for you, the highlight, the Yancey Thigpen highlight. I watched uh, the primetime, the Chris Berman, TJ primetime three-minute recap of this. I'm pretty sure Brett Favre had three concussions in this game. I'm not lying. They showed Brett Favre come up woozy three separate times in a three-minute highlight package. And Jim McMahon, remember Jim... 
the backup quarterback that year, he actually played in this game. He didn't play at all that year. He actually got into this game at one point and played real downs in a close game and led the team on a field goal drive because Favre had to sit out for a drive because he didn't know where he was. Edgar Bennett scored a touchdown this game. Of course, sloppy weather. He had 100 yards on the ground. Packers were up 7-0 on a Robert Brooks touchdown pass from Favre. 14-3 Packers. Later, Favre got knocked out, and then they call a timeout so that he can get back in the game. And he gets back in, probably not knowing who he's throwing to. Throws a one-yard touchdown to Chewy. Packers are up 21-10. It ends up being a 24-19 game with a couple minutes left. And Neil O'Donnell and the Steelers, who are on their way to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 30. They are driving down the field, and they convert two fourth downs inside the Packer, or one inside the 20 and one inside the 10-yard line, two fourth and ones. And one of them was a Neil O'Donnell quarterback sneak, not the tush push. No one was called offsides on the offensive line on this one. And he doesn't even come close to getting it, and they gave him the most generous spot, and we didn't have replay back then in 1995. I couldn't believe they gave him a first down. I was retroactively angry from something that happened 33 years ago. How could they give him that first down or 28 years ago? That kept the drive alive. It ends up with 16 seconds left. One final play. Neil O'Donnell and Yancey Thigpen in the near corner of the end zone. Nobody was around Yancey, who was an all-pro or Pro Bowl wide receiver at that point for the Steelers. Nobody was within three yards of him. This was the easy go-ahead touchdown, and he dropped it. Here was the NBC audio. O'Donnell shotgun throws as a man drops. It was right in Thigpen's hands. That is a gift for Mike Holmgren and the Packers. Santa Claus is wearing number 82 for Green Bay today. And I remember watching that game in our living room on 6th Street in Sheboygan and losing my mind when he dropped it and going berserk, just like the crowd was there. What a Christmas gift. They're the NFC Central champions. We could not believe we were saying those words. And I think maybe I've said this before on the podcast. I know I've said it on the B93 Morning Show. We went immediately then to Yonkers in downtown Sheboygan, who had advertised that day, if the Packers win, probably advertised in the newspaper, (laughs) the Sunday newspaper, if the Packers win and they win the division title, we have your championship apparel waiting for you at Yonkers. And we and a lot of other Sheboygan Packer fans went there immediately and got that super plain, I still have it, the plain white hat with the green bill, Packer logo in the middle that just says in Times New Roman, (laughs) NFC Central Champions. It's such a blah hat, but it was such a moment to be able to have that and have it on your head. That was one of my favorite Packers Steeler memories from Christmas Eve 1995, that first division title. Packers would come up short that year and get knocked out in the NFC Championship game, and then the Steelers would lose, or yeah, they would lose to the Cowboys that year in Super Bowl Thirty. That was a premier matchup that day on Christmas Eve. Packers getting set for the Steelers this weekend. The Packers have not won in Pittsburgh since 1970. (laughs) They have not won there since 1970. Bart Starr is the last Packer quarterback to win in Pittsburgh. That'll blow your mind. You know who was close? Not the closest, maybe. I think Rodgers played a few close games in Pittsburgh. They don't play in Pittsburgh much. You know who was close to doing that in 2017, year of the collarbone injury? 
Brett Hundley, who I see a lot of people comparing Jordan Love to. He went into Pittsburgh on Sunday night football, had a late lead. Packers coughed it up, tie game, and then he could not get anything on the subsequent drive after the game got tied. Steelers got the ball back. Roethlisberger took him down the field, and they kick a 53-yard field goal to win 31-28. to Brett Hundley that game had three touchdowns and no picks. That probably was his best individual performance during that run of starts he had after Rodgers went down. Could you imagine Bart Starr handing the baton to Brett Hundley? Is he even playing anymore? I think he has been a backup as recently as two years ago. Brett Hundley. I know he had a cup of coffee in the XFL probably or the USFL. I bet he – oh, he hasn't played in the NFL since 2019. Well, that's not that long ago. He was in Arizona and made a couple of appearances for the Cardinals in 2019. He almost won that game in 2017 though. Look, I'm going to say what we've said basically the last four or five weeks here. We want to win. You hope they can build on the 20-3 win against a bad Rams team. But we'll see. All I'm concerned about for the remainder of this year, unless they win this game, and then maybe maybe we do start using the P word. All I'm concerned about right now on November 10th for the rest of this year is seeing improvements from this team. I think we saw some of that last week. You saw the offensive line protect a bit better. The run game was excellent against a Rams defense that's not that bad with Aaron Donald in the middle of it. They ran for five yards a clip, almost 190 yards on the ground. That was encouraging. Love had a no turnover game, his best completion percentage in a game the entire year, 78%. He still missed his passes, some passes, but was fairly accurate given the sample size we've seen so far this year. There were some steps. The secondary, the young secondary with Valentine now and Anthony Johnson Jr. had the tipped interception off the fingertips of Jair Alexander. There were things to like coming out of that game, even in the same breath saying that Rams team is not a good Rams team. And if that Rams team has Stafford, it's probable that it's at least a field goal game, and it's probably likely the Rams win that game if they have Matthew Stafford out there, but they did not. Packers got the win. Now, can you build on it? Can you build on that heading into a tough road environment? Steeler offense is not a whole lot better than that Ram offense. I would say Kenny Pickett is probably on the level with Jordan Love or maybe a little worse than Jordan Love even. He's better than Brett Rippon, I think. That offense, though, is not that good, and it came out this week that Joe Barry, the Joe Barry defense, much maligned, according to Pro Football Reference, which is one of the go-tos, they have the eighth-ranked defense in the NFL. The Green Bay Packers have the eighth-ranked defense in the NFL. Craig Council is with the Cubs, and the Packers have a top-ten defense. Dame Lillard is in Milwaukee. Our pets' heads are falling off. Dogs and cats living together. They And they do. Now, If you look at the schedule, they have not played anybody with a very potent offense. They have kept the Packers in most games. Their most egregious game or egregious half of football of poor defense was likely against the Lions. What did the Lions put up? 28 points in that first half. Beyond that, though, against bad teams, they've pretty much done their job of keeping this team in games. They have the 11th best team in terms of points per game given up. 8th best in total defense, 11th best in points per game yielded. Can't say I thought that was going to be the case this year. Then you, with those numbers, you hope they can do something similar to what they did. I don't think they're holding the Steelers to three points on Sunday, but if you can keep them in that 10 to 17 point range or that 15 to 17 point range, maybe give yourself a chance to win. The biggest concern for me and for a lot of Packer fans this weekend is that Packer offense against a very good Steeler defense and an elite front seven led by 
T.J. Watt. Raise your hand if you're a Packer fan who's excited to hear about how the Packers could have drafted T.J. Watt, but instead passed on him and drafted Kevin King. You think they'll bring that up on the broadcast? Do you think that's on the broadcast notes for the noon kickoff on Sunday? I can already see T.J. Watt crushing Jordan Love, beating Rasheed Walker like a drum, crushing Jordan Love, and then right after that, I'm sure we're going to hear about, all oh, the Packers could have had T.J. Watt. Get ready for that. Mentally prepare yourself now for that. That Steeler defense against a Packer offensive line that has been subpar most of the year. Jordan Love, we know, is not making snap decisions right now, kind of overthinking things in the pocket. That feels like a recipe for a tough afternoon offensively against a good secondary and against an elite front seven, which the Steelers do have. Now, that's going to be on the offense to execute, but it is also going to be on Matt LaFleur to go with play designs and go with play calls that are going to get this team in rhythm. Quick passes, get the ball out, first read, hopefully, if they're not being anticipated by the Steelers' defenders. Get the ball out as quickly as you can. Don't think about things. Go with the first or second read. Try to move the ball forward and move the ball up the field as best you can. That's going to be on Matt LaFleur to make that happen and get the offense comfortable in a road environment against a good defense. That is, in my mind, the most difficult matchup of Sunday. The Packer offensive line versus that front seven. Will Jordan Love have time? Will he have time to go to a second read? Will he have time to make the proper read and step into a throw and not have the happy feet like he's had back there? We'll find out on Sunday. Packers only three-and-a-half-point dogs. Doesn't sound like Jair Alexander's going to play. Matt LaFleur did not seem too optimistic about that in his press interview on Thursday. So you'd be down a pretty big piece in the secondary. Otherwise, Aaron Jones, it sounds like, or LaFleur has indicated that he is going to be full go again. Hopefully 15-plus touches, had 24 in the victory on Sunday. That helped get A.J. Dillon going. That helped get the offensive line going, too. Outside of Jair, I'm not sure there are too many significant injuries heading into Sunday, but that is a big one. Packers being three-and-a-half-point dogs, I thought they'd be more. This Steeler team is 5-3, and three, and with that defense and it being in Pittsburgh, home field now, for the most of the gambling world or most of gambling life, in the NFL or any football game, home field generally is three points. If you feel like the game is a push, the home field team gets three points. Now, more... More people are saying that's more like two or two and a half. Most sharps are saying that home field in a push game is more like two or two and a half. The Steelers are getting three and a half. They're getting a little bit more than the home field advantage based on that math. Still, though, I thought the Packers would be five or six point dogs in this game. I'm not sure I'm touching plus three and a half. It is a noon kickoff on Sunday. We'll see if the Packers can build a little bit and get to four and five. And then if they can if they can get to 500, then maybe we can spin this in the right direction. Probably not. That is coming up on Sunday. What else do we have on the rundown here? I actually had to write all this down. Oh, Badgers at home against Northwestern, 2.30 kickoff. I Just like I can't believe the Packers are only three-and-a-half-point favorites, I cannot believe the Badgers are 11-point favorites. Badgers coming off of a disgusting loss at Indiana, embarrassing loss at Indiana. They're 5-4. and four, They're 3-3. Three and three. It's been a letdown of a year. Meanwhile, Northwestern, with all of the offseason stories and the hazing and Pat Fitzgerald dismissed, I think we said in a September podcast or an August podcast, I think I bet against Northwestern, one of our early picks, and I said at the time, I thought they were going to win a game or two. They've been surprisingly resilient to their own damage. I'm not, this isn't, they have nobody to blame but themselves for what all happened in the offseason. They have been able to bounce back, though. They are in most games. They're only a game worse than the Badgers coming into Saturday. Badgers are 5-4, and four, Northwestern's 4-5. and five. I'm not going to lay any wood on this game. If I were, though, if you said to me, John, you have to pick something to bet on in this game, I would take Northwestern plus 11, wouldn't you? 
Northwestern has been close in every game. They lost at home to Iowa by three. They beat Maryland by six. They lost at Nebraska by eight. They did get blown out against Penn State. It was an overtime game against Minnesota. They did lose at Duke pretty handily. But this Badger team is not a ranked Duke team or even uh, is definitely not a ranked Penn State team and not even on the level of Iowa. I Is Braylon coming back? We don't know. That line would indicate to me that either Tanner Mordecai or Braylon Allen or maybe both are going to be playing in this game. I would not touch that 11-point spread unless I was going for it on the Northwestern side. We don't know a ton about the injuries. College teams don't have to be as forthcoming about that heading into a weekend. Maybe you do get Braylon back, and you maybe you do get Mordecai back. He was in uniform heading into the game at Indiana. Obviously did not play in that game. They probably win if he plays in that game. And as we talked about on the Monday podcast, there are no draft picks at stake here. You're not going for draft status. You want as many wins as you can get if you are head coach Luke Fickle in the recruiting department. You'd much rather be in a kid's living room in summer with an 8-4 and four team with a bowl game and a bowl win as opposed to a 5-7 and seven team or a 6-6 six and six team. You're out to win games. You do want to find out what some of these players have for next year. We discussed on Monday, do you want to give Braden Locke the rest of the starts, even if Mordecai is healthy, just to see if Locke is going to be the guy next year because he's going to be here next year in all likelihood, and Mordecai we know is not going to be here. He's already burned up his last year of eligibility. But maybe if Mordecai is back or if Allen's back or they're both back, that would, to me, mean maybe you should be a 10-ish point favorite. But 11? I don't know. 2.30 kickoff at Camp Randall on Saturday afternoon. We have to talk real quick about the Bucks. What a weird week. They went in Brooklyn on Monday. Dame helped close that game out. Then on Wednesday, the Pistons in town should have been a pretty easy win and looked like it was going to be. Early third quarter, Bucks were up by 13 or 15. They were 12-point favorites. Giannis got a technical early in the game. I don't even remember what he got that first technical for. But the rule in the NBA is two technicals and you're ejected. At that point, when you give a superstar one technical, the officials have to come together and say, okay, Giannis has, or who is a superstar? Jason Tatum, or Joel Embiid, or why can't I think of the guy? Why can't I think of the reigning MVP? Why can't I think of the name of the guy in Denver? Hold on, Denver... (laughs) I keep on thinking Kristaps Porzingis, but that's not it. Jokic. Okay, Jokic has a technical. Giannis has a technical. They have to come together and say, if if we're going to give them a second technical, it had better be earned. That second technical had better be earned. The NBA, like all leagues, but especially the NBA, is a superstar-driven league. Fans are going to games to watch Jokic play, even though they can't remember his name. (laughs) To, To watch Giannis play, to watch Embiid play. You cannot give out a soft ejection to an elite superstar, especially when it's a November Wednesday night. Those are the true fans that are at November Wednesday games, and they are there to see Giannis, to see Dame, to see whoever the Pistons have. Cunningham? They are there to see the superstars. So Giannis gets that first technical. Then in the early third quarter, he's driving down the lane, goes for a dunk, hammers it down, and he stares at the guy he dunked on for maybe .3 seconds, postures a little bit before turning and walking up court. At that point, we got an elite moment from one of this generation's great athletes, great entertainers, Scott Twardowski, the far side official, as Giannis turned after half staring at his defender for a split second, Twardowski could not wait to give him that second technical foul. Could not wait. Had a look on his face of such smug pleasure. Smugness is not a good quality. He had such a look of smugness when he gave him that tee. 
And then Giannis goes up to him and says, what, what are you, why? Why? First of all, how? Second of all, why? And Twardowski, the little twerp, turns his back on him, and then he turns around like a mom yelling at her kid and says, you're out of here, you're out of here. And he signals like that and says, no, 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 you're out of here. He could not have been more proud of himself for calling that technical for .3 seconds of taunting and ejecting one of the greatest, if not the greatest player on the planet right now. Because that's what people pay to see. All the people in that arena that paid $300 for tickets and 50 bucks for parking and $100 for crap food at Pfizer Forum, which is crap, by the way. Food at Pfizer Forum is terrible. Great arena, awesome sound, love going to games there. Food is trash. And they paid $100 for that if you brought a family of four, you brought your kids to it. They paid all that money, $1,000 in tickets and parking and money, I don't know, 500 bucks and all that stuff. They paid to see Scott Twardowski apply his craft to see one of the great NBA referees (laughs) do what he does best. That's what they all pay to see. That's why we were all watching an NBA game on a Wednesday in early November to see Scott Twardowski ply his trade. I can't wait to buy a Twardowski jersey at the end of the game. Just an absolute fool. And the NBA, of course, like Major League Baseball with Angel Hernandez and all their bad umpires, They said nothing about it. There were no repercussions. These unions that these referees and officials have in Major League Baseball and the NBA and the NFL have to be the most ironclad union. They're like a coal mining union in 1910. I don't understand why we can't get better explanations about why things were done the way that they were or why there can't be repercussions if something like that happens. Because Twardowski should be suspended for a week and fined without pay for that entire week. You just simply cannot do what he did and get away with it. They can't keep getting away with this. He was not the lead official on that crew. I forget who that guy was. At the end of the game, he did do a sit-down with some reporters and gave the most pert, happily-ass interview that I've ever heard in my life where he just said, the reporters in Milwaukee said, well, why did Giannis get the first technical? Because he did this. Why did Giannis get the second technical? Because he taunted his opponent, and then he was ejected. By rule, there are two technicals and then an ejection. And that was the, literally those were the responses they got. No, nothing expounded upon why this Twardowski twerp would have had an axe to grind or was he upset about something else that happened during the course of the game? Did Giannis say something to him? These are the details you want to know when something that crazy happens. Of course, they skated and nobody had any repercussions for it. There were no penalties for it. And they were officiating a game, I'm sure, on Thursday. And we'll never hear about it again. I want Bucks fans to remember Scott Twardowski. And I want the next time he's at Fiserv Forum, which will happen at some point this year, I want him to get the Craig Council boo. Let me get my boo up again here. I want him to get the same council boo treatment. Boo! Boo! He deserves it. It's unfathomable that you would eject a player on his home floor, a superstar, for something so soft. That was 10-ply baby food soft by Twardowski. Disgusting. Then on Thursday, the Bucs played in Indiana. Pacers are a pretty good up-tempo team this year. They've got a ton of talent on that squad. I think they're not going to threaten the Bucs for the Central Division title. Not that anybody cares about that. It's all about conference standings in the NBA. I don't even know why they have divisions anymore, honestly. They are in the same division, though. I don't think Indiana's going to threaten the Bucs for that, but Indiana looks like it's going to be a playoff team. They're going to be a 40-ish win team, 45-win team that'll probably be a 6 or 7 seed or maybe even 5 seed come playoff time with Tyrese Halliburton on that squad, and they are loaded and fast and young. Bucks go there. Dame sits out. Load management. Strained calf. Load management. And he's the guy who got it across the finish line on Wednesday. After that Giannis ejection, the whole game flipped, which almost makes me think the officials had the Pistons plus 12. Do we have a Tim Donaghy situation there? That looked like it was going to be a Bucks cover. Then Giannis is ejected. The game changes radically. Pistons were up by 10 with five minutes to go. And then Damon Brooke had to rally the team. They won by two. 
Because of so much exertion on Wednesday, Dame did not play on Thursday. Middleton was back, though. Bucks were down by a ton early. They fight back. Giannis was unstoppable in the paint. Eventually, the Bucks had almost a double-digit lead in the fourth quarter. With 10 or 9 minutes left in the fourth quarter, Giannis had 54 points. And at that juncture, I'm thinking not only are they going to win this game, but Giannis could score 70. He might put a 70-burger up. He is going to easily get past the Michael Red single-game scoring record of 57 points, which Red did in a loss to Utah at the Bradley Center back, I think, in 05 or 06. That felt inevitable that he was going to get past that with that much time left and how much he was exerting his will on that game. Unfortunately, it was at about that juncture, at about the five-minute mark, maybe a few minutes later, they just ran out of gas. On the second night of a back-to-back, and I know nobody wants the excuses from the million-dollar athletes, but they just, you could tell, they ran out of gas. Giannis ran out of gas. He stopped at 54. He was 16 of 18 at the free-throw line, though. He, that was like game six-level free-throw shooting from Giannis last night. He didn't score. He had a couple of critical turnovers late, and they just missed Dame. Dame's only been on this team for eight games, and he's played in seven of them now. And we are already used to, in crunch time, we said it after opening night against the Sixers, this is what this Bucks team has lacked, a go-to guy when you need a basket late in a game. Well, they needed that last night as the offensive system was crumbling and the Pacers were on a run and the Pacers got back in front, but it was still a one-point game. Middleton had a look at the end of last night's game, clean look for three when they were down 124-121, to 121, but he could not connect and that was the end of the game. But that last 30 minutes, with all the turnovers and the rough offense, you just thought, God bless, this is, we already missed Dame. We've only known Dame as a buck for a week and a half, really. We miss him. If Dame's in that game, they win. If Dame is in that game in the final three minutes, the offense looks better. He finds a way to hit a shot or get to the free throw line, which he is so adept at doing. I didn't know that part of Lillard's game. I didn't realize he gets the line 10 times a game like Giannis does. That's going to be a killer for opponents come playoff time. I know the Bucks' defense has not looked totally tight, and there's a lot of things that we're not loving maybe eight games into it. At the end of a playoff game, the ability of Giannis and Dame to just live at the free throw line is going to be a tough thing to defend for opponents. That was that first example, though, of not having Dame last night and then with two minutes left looking around and saying, boy, I don't know who we'd want to play for here. I wish we had Dame. They end up losing 128 to 126. Bucks are 5 and 3 on the year and they are set for a trip to Orlando on Saturday evening, 5 o'clock tip time. Real quick some college hoops. The Badgers have number 9 Tennessee at the Kohl Center 8 o'clock tonight on Peacock app, which I think get to pay for. Number 5 Marquette takes on Ryder. They are 27 point favorites in what should be a cupcake game 7:30 at Fiserv Forum. Let's make some picks. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10,000 to 1 on anything, you take it. That's a cool G, Daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. We'll make these quick. This has been a long podcast. We have six games. We went 3-2 and again last week, 26, 23, and 1. We're starting to get a little, little separation. In college, I'm taking Michigan at Penn State minus four with all of the controversy around Michigan right now and the cheating and the spying and what's his name, Connor Stallions and all that stuff. I just don't think Penn State matches up with Michigan. I believe Michigan wins this game by double digits. I also believe Michigan's going to beat down Ohio State by double digits. They're that much better than the other two best teams in the Big Ten. It is at Happy Valley. It's at Penn State. And it's 11 a.m. The Big Ten has to figure out a way to get out of these 11 a.m. games. This big noon Saturday crap, it's so dumb. You end up with the number one team taking on the number five team or the number four team taking on the number three team. And it's at 11 a.m. These games need to be late afternoon primetime. I do not understand a game of this stature being at 11 a.m. And the Michigan-Ohio State game, which is more tradition-based, that game's going to be at 11 a.m. too. And that's probably going to be number one versus number two. 
I will take Michigan minus four at Happy Valley at Penn State. I'm going to take Iowa minus one at home against Rutgers. Coin flip game. I just think Iowa's going to win. They may win by two. They may win. It may be a push where they win by a point. But I will take them at home. They're back kind of in the driver's seat for the Big Ten West Championship now. I'll take them at home against Rutgers. And I'm going to get back on the Dion train. Colorado has kept a lot of games close at home. They've covered at home quite a bit. They are plus 10 and a half at home against number 23, Arizona. I will ride with Shador Sanders and Dion and Hunter and the whole crew. I have not bet on them. I bet on them every week the first four weeks, and I think we made money on them every week. Maybe one loss. Might have been three and one against the spread. I'll take Colorado, especially with that half-point hook, plus 10.5 at home against number 23, Arizona. Then in the NFL, I am going to ride with Josh Dobbs and the Vikings at the expense of my Saints, who are now up a game in the NFC South, and we've got them to win that division. Future bet. Dobbs, though, just seems like a gamer. He seems like a winner. And they're at home. Now he's had a full week of practice. He's probably learned his teammates' names. I will take the Vikings catching points at home against a Saints team that does not play well on the road. Vikings plus three at home. I will take the Chargers plus three at home against Detroit. Lions are one of the top teams in the NFC. That's a tough place to play, even though L.A. doesn't have an inherent home field advantage there. Typically, that Charger, that new Charger stadium is invaded by the opposing team's fans. I am certain Detroit will do that on Sunday. I just the Chargers have so much talent and they are only four and four. I'll take them at home with points plus three. And I'm gonna ride the Antonio Pierce interim coach wave still for Vegas. That paid dividends in a big way last week. They are minus one at home against the Jets. That's a primetime game. That's the Sunday night football, America's game of the week, the Raiders and the Jets. Probably thought you were gonna have Jimmy G versus Aaron Rodgers at the beginning of that year, or Devontae versus Aaron Rodgers at the beginning of that year. At the beginning of the year when you put that on the schedule. I just think they're going to still be hyped up with a young interim head coach. I will take Vegas and basically a coin flip at home against the Jets. Chargers plus three against the Lions. Vikings plus three against the Saints. Colorado plus ten and a half against Arizona. Iowa minus one against Rutgers. And Michigan minus four at Penn State. That'll do it for us here. Have a happy, safe weekend. And thank you to our veterans, Veterans Day weekend. We will chat again on Monday. 